0: When, when reading di- the different genres that, that take place, or that occur in the Bible. So, when you think of different genres in the Bible, consider how you, again, I, I, I'm trying to balance how I say this, because I don't want us to think that the Bible is just like any other book. But I do want to stress that we still read it like any other book in the sense that, just like you would read all of these different genres quite differently you would probably read a love letter from your significant other differently than you would read a shopping list from your significant other. Um, And you could probably, just based on her look on her face, you could probably determine what she's reading. I mean, oh, that's a little, it's a little helpful. Sure, it's she's probably, laughing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, she's probably not reading a shopping list, I guess, depending on what's on the list, but, you know, the, the way we read different genres affect us differently, too, as we're well aware. When you read the Psalms, sometimes it makes you, oh, yeah, this is awesome. It reminds me of this Chris Tomlin song that I really like. How did David know what Chris Tomlin was going to sing about? <laughs> and uh, and then when you read Leviticus, your countenance changes. <laughs> you, you know, you you look differently when you're reading different genres. So, what are the rules of the game? An illustration that I heard was: if you're going to play baseball or basketball or football, you have to know what rules apply to the game that you're playing. Otherwise, you're just Running around the field like a psycho. Um, you've probably seen kids play t ball where it's like they take off running and it's like, no, first base, first base. You know, they go running <laughs> in this direction or whatever. You know, they don't know the rules. That's what t ball is for, is to learn the rules. So there's different rules that apply to different genres in the Bible and we interpret them differently based on what genre. We don't, we use different interpretive methods. Maybe we don't interpret them differently. But that's a better way to say that. So, narrative stories, and we got the most famous narrator of all, Morgan Freeman. Um, so, <coughs> narratives and stories, it's 50% of the Bible, over 50% of the Bible. So, this is, the, the large bulk of what you read, if you just open the Bible, is just a story. And so, just like any story, rather than telling us how or how not to live. It shows us how or how not to live. You've probably heard that saying and if you've heard authors talk about or heard what makes for a good story if you're reading it, you show them, you don't tell them. And you might find that's usually why, you know, like an action-packed, die-hard type movie or a reenactment of like a Dunkirk type movie is more interesting than if you sit down and watch a documentary about it. Now I like documentaries, but what are they doing in documentaries? They're just sitting there like boring professors telling you what happened. Their their opinion. Yeah, they're giving you your opinion. Their opinion. They're telling you what happened or what they believe happened. In the movie they're showing you what happened. And it's much more exciting. So stories have that power. But the reader, you have to have the discernment to know We talked about this a couple weeks ago you have to be the one to have the discernment to know wait this person did this is that a good thing or is that a bad thing now in scripture it's often clear it might even say god wasn't pleased with this or ananias and sapphira they lie about how much money that they gave or whatever and they drop dead you know it doesn't take a genius to know god probably wasn't too pleased with what they did But we have to have the discernment. So, um, and another example of having to have discernment, maybe a more ambiguous one is you read the life of Solomon and we're not there yet in our Bible reading, but you get to the life of Solomon and it talks about how, how great of a king he was. And then it says things like he amassed, you know, tens of thousands of horses and he piled this, you know, he accumulated this much amount of gold. And he had these many wives and concubines, you know, a thousand wives and concubines and all that kind of stuff. And you read it and you're like, oh, okay, Solomon, he's raised a lot of money. He was really powerful, really strong. But when you look at that in light of what God said about when you get a king, do not allow him to be this kind of a king who amasses a large amount of horses, who taxes you and steals all your money and takes many wives from the surrounding nations. God's saying that's a bad thing to do. And here you have Solomon, we're being told. He did this, he did that, and he did that. And it's like, well, maybe that's not all such a great thing when God says don't do, don't do that and he does it. So <clears throat> things to pay attention in the narrative, though, is the plot, the, the you know, the what and the how, what is going on. Now that maybe seems to, to be redundant. Of course that's what you're paying attention to when you when you watch a story. But the plot is actually really the most significant part of the story. And <clears throat> You know, we won't delve too much into this, but in narratives and in stories, it's not that you can't get theological significance out of... You know, you think about David and Goliath. Very classic story. And again, remember, you think about all the stories that even when you go to Sunday school, you know. Typically, you're not delving into, like, theological issues like salvation by faith alone in, you know, Sunday school or third grade or whatever. But you're hearing stories about David and Goliath. Why? Because narratives are but not that there aren't theological significances all throughout in the little details of David and Goliath but just like stories in the book of Ruth is a perfect example of this if you've ever read Ruth it sets the stage at the beginning it gives you the setting it creates a problem a conflict a tension point tension rises 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 until there's a breaking point and then there's a solution there's like a savior or there's something that comes in that fixes the problem and then there's the resolution and it's not that there's theological, not theological issues all throughout the story, but typically in narratives, that theological, remember that th- theological principle that we want to walk away with, is typically going to be found in the the resolution of the story, how it resolves. That's where, just like at the end of every movie, every story that we tell, the, you know, it, it may be important 30 minutes in that, you know, Clint Eastwood goes to the bar and has a drink with a dude or whatever that might be significant but typically the point of the movie comes out right at the end when it's finally resolved and it's like oh yeah like you walk away with that's the meaning of the movie and that's typically what happens in the Bible is when it resolves then you know oh okay that's the point that I'm supposed to take away with it so David and Goliath you know he picks up five stones from the riverbed and oh why did he pick up five stones why did he, oh maybe how many David, oh, Goliath had four brothers so he must have To took a stone for each brother maybe maybe he just thought it's gonna take more than one stone to to take Goliath down so he grabbed five we don't know and you can talk about that and you can preach a sermon on that but really what's the point of the David and Goliath story at the end he kills Goliath and the point is he he says it kind of right at the beginning God helped me kill the bear God has helped me kill lions and God's gonna help me kill this guy too and then the tension the plot what's gonna happen what's gonna happen well, what happened is God helped him kill Goliath. So um, the setting, so the when and the where, this is also incredibly important. If you look in Ruth chapter 1, and you don't necessarily have to turn there, but it opens, during the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land of Judah. Well, it tells you the setting right there, at least the, the when, when this happened. During the time of the Judges. And if you know something about the time of the Judges, it was a time, it says it over and over again, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's what was going on in Israel at the time. It was not a very pretty time to be alive. So, in that story of Ruth, here you've got everyone doing what's right in their own eyes, no one really living for the Lord, and now you have this woman who's thrust into this very frightening situation to be in, you know, her husband's dead. She's all alone. What's going to happen to this woman? So, um, and the characters' answers are who. Who's involved in the story. And then there's comparing and contrasting. And again, if, if you go to Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5. Remember, another thing to remember in when you read the Bible is the chapter divisions and the verses did not exist in the original text. Those were added much later. So, they're often not very helpful. They sometimes break up the flow of, of thought. You know, you're listening to the audiobook on, on the Bible app and it's gets to the end of a point and then it pauses. Chapter five. And then it goes into the next point. It's like, come on, that's that's annoying. So you see a problem with this at the end of Acts chapter four and acts chapter five, where in this story of the early church you have a Barnabas who sells his field and he sells his land and he gives it to the apostles and they distribute it to the poor and oh man people are getting saved because look at what Barnabas did and he was sacrificially gave all of his money away you know it was really awesome and kind of tells you a little bit about Barnabas because he's going to be a main character in the book of Acts. And then it goes right into chapter five and what happens in the beginning of chapter five Ananias and Sapphira they sell a parcel of land they lie about how much they sold it for, and they say, oh, we gave all of it to the apostles, and they really didn't, and so they lied about it. And, and so you're supposed to see in that narrative this comparing they're contrasting Barnabas with Ananias and Sapphira. And that helps in this to have discernment. Now, again, with Ananias and Sapphira, you know they dropped dead. <laughs> what happened, what they did wasn't good. But you also can see in a narrative when they con- contrast characters like that, it's like, well, you want to be a Barnabas. Not an Ananias and Sapphira, so that's helpful. Um, but <clears throat> there's often nuance in characters, and there's ambiguity. You just don't know. Is this person really a, a good player? Are they? Just somebody should I, that I should emulate? And, and that takes you know some discernment to know. But we often talk. We, we talk about this. Often the point comes in the resolution of the story. That's that's the point that God wants us to walk away with. So. Um, some advantages of using narrative. We can see why God devoted half of the Bible to this. It's interesting and engaging. Again, what do we tell kids in Sunday school? We don't sit down and and, and, and to our shame, you know, I think that's why a lot of young people walk away not really knowing things about Scripture, you know, theological principles. Now, I'm not advocating that we sit down and exposit the book of Romans to a two-year-old. <laughs> We're probably not going to understand some of those deep theological concepts. But narrative is really engaging. And if you've ever had a pastor, I'm, I'm not this way. I'm much more of a, here's the facts, do it, do it whatever you want. But if you have, I'm, I'm thinking of our old regional director within faith. He preached a sermon at our church one time on The parable of the lost son, or the forgiving father, or the prodigal son, and he told it in such a way that you're like, oh my, this is so engrossing because he like told it from the from the point of view of the prodigal son, and and it's just you just realize, wow, like you're just sucked into the story. So if you've got somebody who's a good storyteller, it's very interesting and engaging. So it pulls us in. This um we, we talked about last week, you know kind of the King James and different translations of the Bible. I think I was telling Don one of the benefits that the King James has that other translations don't have is it uses the ye's and in the in the you's and stuff, which we kind of don't like, but that's the only English version we have of, if I'm talking to you, we have no way in English to know if I'm talking to you or you as a group. Ye is that plural version, and Greek has that too. So when they translate it ye, it's meaning like ye. So the closest we have is y'all. But, but King James, to its credit, has that, whereas other ones don't have it. King James also has this. Now some of the other ones have it too. You're reading along in, in, in the Bible, and, and then it'll say, lo and behold, this happened. And it's a, it's a narrative hook, kind of, that it's supposed to pull you in and say, you, as the reader, look. Look through the eyes of the person here, lo and behold look at what's happening. So it's kind of supposed to bring you in and give you a first-person look at what's happening. And really, it's, it's the realness that you can relate to in the story. When we talk about being real and being transparent, the characters in the Bible didn't have much say in the matter. They were who they were, and their life got put on display for all of us to read about for forever. But when you read about Abraham lying to Pharaoh and and Abimelech, I think, if I'm remembering the characters correctly, about who Sarah is. Oh, she's my she's my sister. She's not really my wife. Because he doesn't yeah. want to get killed or whatever and have his wife stolen from him. So he's just going to lie and say, oh, she's just my sister. We think, man, Abraham, what a loser move. But we kind of think, well, I'm not a whole lot different than Abraham. I, you know, I'm just like that. I make mistakes all the time. So... That's what we can relate to in stories, is how real people are. And it also shows us that life is not black and white. Again, a classic example of this, we're about to get into it in our reading, is Rahab and Jericho, when they cross over, it's a question that people always talk about. She lied, the spies came to her home, and she lied when people said, hey, where are those spies that came to your house? No spies came here, and meanwhile she's got them hid in her house, or on her roof, I think, or whatever. She's hiding them, and she lied about it. Now, again, we kind of in you know, you're hiding Jews in Nazi Germany. Can you lie to a Nazi to protect, you know? It's, it, those are ethical questions that it doesn't really, now when we get to the New Testament, it calls her righteous, and specifically talks about she hid the spies. Um, but in narratives, it's not black and white. Is that okay to lie? God's very harsh on lying, but she's lying for a greater cause, you know? So it's like, and that's what we can relate to. We know things are not always black and white, but they're also easy to remember and, and, and to retell. And in a culture where they didn't write a lot of stuff down, they were very oral culture. You had to have stories that were very engaging and gripped people. And God himself, most importantly, can become a part of his own story. He can be a character um, in his story. Some disadvantages we've we've sort of already talked about. If you're just reading it casually, you can miss the point really easily. You'll just gloss right over details that we're supposed to be picking up. Because unlike an epistle where it's saying, you need to do this, this is just a story we're being told. very unclear. Again, you can easily get wrapped up in the story and miss the point. So, uh, you know, the story is so engaging—Noah's Ark and all that kind of stuff. Oh, this is really crazy! And just wait a second—we just missed the point that God killed everything and everybody on the planet. That's pretty significant. But we're just wrapped up because we're like, oh man, how did Noah get those animals on the ark? It's like that's not really the point of what's going on in that story. But um, and then there's assumptions. Like, it's only a story, there's no theology here. And we kind of fall into that when it's like, man, i got to preach a sermon on you know, something out of the book of Numbers. It's so whatever, it's just stories of people walking around in the desert. Like, there ain't nothing going on here worth preaching about. Well, that would be a wrong assumption. Or, make the opposite assumption. There's, that there's only theology in this story. And then that becomes, becomes like, you start to allegorize the story. And that means, like we talked about, um, the Bible's literal, but it uses symbolic language and allegorical language and figurative language and stuff. When you allegorize, it's like oh, Noah's Ark it didn't really happen. It's just a it's a symbol of protection and, and God watching. You know all this kind of stuff. Um, so it's a it's a hard balance to strike to find the theology and narratives, but it is there. God is he put it there for a reason. So you remember that. Um, in <clears throat> the Gospels. It's kind of a subset of narratives. So all the same rules apply when we think of narratives. When you're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's all the same stuff. We're reading stories, so it's engaging, and we get pulled in. We have to remember all that stuff about narratives, but also we have to think of, well, which Gospel are we reading? And what I mean is, there's four of them. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic Gospels. They're Synoptic means they're saying the same thing. That's why they read so similarly. Um, but John is completely different. But they also have different purposes. That's why God wanted them to write different ones. They, they, they have different emphasis to them. So Matthew is showing Jesus as the Jewish king. That's his point. He's, he's writing primarily to Jewish people, saying this is our Messiah that we've been waiting for. So he uses a lot more Old Testament prophecies. He'll say things like, this happened to fulfill this, which was written by the prophet Isaiah. This happened in this way to fulfill this. So he's constantly taking the Jewish people back. That's what he's trying to show them. Mark is really the first gospel written, and it's just really brief, and it's really just emphasizing his mission. Jesus as a person and his mission, it jumps right into the action. It's just a very action-packed gospel over and over again if you if you read the book of mark it says immediately a lot and immediately they got up and went to do this and immediately the guy stood up after he was healed and immediately and it's just over and over so it's a very fast-paced quick gospel luke written by a gentile focused on outcast not so much the jewish people but so you have a lot more stories focusing on jesus going to gentile people healing Gentile people, healing women, healing the lepers, healing people that society typically casts out. And then John, altogether different. I mean, there's so much difference between John and the other Gospels. And it's just saying Jesus is God. Those I am statements over and over, and I am the way, the truth, and life. I am the light of the world. So they have different points, and, and um, but then there's also parables that we have to deal with in the Gospels. And I have a love-hate relationship with the parables. I love them because they're kind of fun to read and some of them are quite funny. But I hate them because Jesus says, "You have to have ears to hear to understand what these parables mean." And often I think, "Well, I don't understand what this parable <laughs> means. What does that say about me?" So, so in parables this means that. There it, it, there's it's just they're just stories and it's one thing means another thing. And again, we won't turn there, but Mark, Matthew 13, rather, the parable of the sowers, that's the most classic one, where Jesus tells a guy went out, he sowed seed on the ground, and then a bird comes and eats the seed that's been strewn on the path, and then there's some that crop up a little bit and it dies out, and then there's this, that, and then there's thorns that choke them out, but then there's some that grows good. And then his disciples ask, can you explain that parable to us? And Jesus says, well, if you don't understand this parable, how are you going to understand all of them? But let's break it down for you. The seed is the word of God, the word of the kingdom. The birds are Satan and his angels. The path is, you know, the, the people who hear it are these kinds of people and the ones that fall and shout. And he breaks it down every point. So they all have a point. But the thing that, with parables is they typically only have one or two points. Just like a narrative story, there's not a lot that we're supposed to walk away with. Parables, they have typically one point. When you read it, you're supposed to come away. Just like, um, if I was to t- talk about the parable of the boy who cried wolf. It's a classic parable in our culture. What's the point of the boy who cried wolf? Like, are we supposed to like look at it and say, well, the boy was out in a field. And, 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 he, and he said, oh, there's a wolf out here. So the field probably represents this. And oh, and then he was in the town, and he said, oh, the cried wolf. And oh, the town is probably this. No, that stuff probably doesn't matter. The point is, stop crying wolf when there's not really a wolf, because then when a wolf shows up, no one's going to bleed. So um, that's typically true of parables. There's one point that we're really supposed to walk away with. And then there's metaphors in the gospel, like salt and light bread of life, are to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. So it's like, what does that mean? How is a serpent shrewd? I thought serpents were bad in the Bible. What am I supposed to learn from being shrewd like a serpent? What does he mean when he calls us salt in life? What what imagery is he trying to evoke there? Um, And then also remembering what covenant it falls under. So it's very easy because in our Bible it says Malachi, New Testament, Matthew. So it's very easy to think, when I read the book of Matthew, oh, this is, that's, this is the same covenant that we're under. So when we talk about the differences between their culture and our culture, we tend to think, oh, I can just read this and apply it directly to my life. Well, Galatians 4 says, at the right time, God sent his son, born of a virgin, <coughs> born under the law. So Jesus lived under the law. That was the culture in which he taught, was the law. And that's really helpful, for instance, when you get to, like, the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is over and over again saying, you've heard it taught, don't commit murder. But I tell you that if you've hated your brother, you've already committed murder in your heart. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you if this. You've heard it said this. But I tell you this. And what he's doing is he's speaking to a people under the law who their mentality was the law of God not that hard i can keep that and he's saying no you can't because this is really what the law is and, this is, and so he's really redefining that under this old covenant mm-hmm. While well, faith and focus is a ministry of in faith the views and opinions expressed in this podcast don't necessarily reflect the views and opinions of in faith as a mission If you like what you heard on this episode, why don't you become a monthly supporter of the ministry? It really helps me out $10 a month or whatever the Lord lays on your heart. So if you're interested in becoming a partner, uh, you can text the word DISCIPLESHIP to 41444 or head over to infaith.org backslash Dennis-Sotherby. And if you have any questions or topics that you would like me to address on a future episode of Faith and Focus, why don't you shoot me an email? You can email me at DennisSotherby at InFaith.org, just put in the subject line, question for Faith and Focus, or something like that, uh, so I can see it, know that it's from you, and know that it's an issue that you'd like me to address.